In 2019, the Canadian Centre to End Human Trafficking launched the National Human Trafficking Hotline to provide an avenue for victims and survivors to get assistance and for members of the public to report incidents of human trafficking. The work they are doing now is just beginning to understand the iceberg that is the reality of trafficking in Canada. We are so thankful for their work. Two years ago, Truckers Against Trafficking launched TAT Canada because of the growing reality of trafficking in Canada and the ability for drivers to make a crucial impact. So we are lucky enough today to have with us two survivor leaders to start the conversation about what trafficking can look like in Canada so you can better identify, report, and share this life-saving information. Hello everyone, my name is Helen Hofer and I'm the Freedom Drivers Project Director for Truckers Against Trafficking, or TAT, and you're listening to our podcast, Driving Freedom. My co-host today is Liz Williamson, a TAT training specialist who also leads our TAT Canada program and she's a survivor of familial trafficking. Liz, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, Helen. Great to be here with you today. I am so glad to use my experience as a survivor, but also to have a friend of mine on here and to invite her to share her story. So with that, thank you, Brittany. Thanks for being here with us today. Hi. Yeah, for sure. I'm excited. Yeah. And you you kind of teased to it, Liz, but you guys actually know each other. How did you guys meet? Well, we actually met through a nonprofit that I was working for at the time, and a friend would always mention Brittany's name and said, oh, you have similar stories. You should really get to know each other. Brittany, can you start us off by telling us a little bit more about your childhood and your growing up and what life was like? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I grew up in Canada in Bedford, um, and so... To the outside world, um, my childhood definitely looked like the perfect childhood in life. Um, I grew up in a wealthy family. I was a dancer when I was younger and a cheerleader in my early teens. I had all the nice clothes and all the nice things. But in reality, I was living in hell. It was a very chaotic home life, as I never knew what the day would hold. My dad was always in the States working, and my mom was never home either. My mom was having an affair. When she was home, she was extremely emotionally and physically abusive towards me. Uh, There was a lot of neglect, too, so, and it was just me and my sister to start off with, and then my parents did actually take in two older boys um, when I was about 10 years old. Was there a lot of, like, status, like, building or, like, showing off kind of things that happened? I always had to have like the perfect clothes, like perfect outfit on. I always had to have a smile on my face. Everything always had to be perfect so that, you know, no one was looking in my home at what was going on. I like in cheer, everything, I had to be the best of the best. In dance, I had to be the best of the best. And just everything had to be the best, except for in school, which was really interesting, right? 
I, I can't imagine. I mean, growing up, I feel like I already felt that pressure, right? Like no one really had to say too much or do too much for me to feel like I need to be perfect and I need to like put this face forward. So then to have that so clearly stressed to you and explain to you, like, how did that make you feel in your everyday life? It definitely made me feel like the weight of the world was on my shoulders because I felt a lot of pressure to hold my family together and hold all these lies and secrets that were happening behind the scenes together. And it was like this whole performance that I had to put on for the world. And it was a lot to handle. And then I would have my friends come up to me and be like, your life is so perfect. And I wish I could have your life. And deep down, it was just like, (laughs) you have no idea what's going on. And it was like, does anyone see anything that's happening? Like no one is really hearing or seeing me. I just felt really unheard and really invisible. You know, Brittany, you bring up a good point, feeling invisible. I know that many listeners may be able to identify with your story of abuse just by hearing that you felt like no one saw you. So just for a quick second, Brittany, so our listeners understand better, I was wondering if you could identify for me who did traffic you. Yeah, it was my grandpa. So my grandpa on my mom's side. And you know what? That is just horrible for all of us to hear because we're imagining that our families are supposed to be our safe place. If the rest of the world is falling apart, we're supposed to be able to go to our families and have somewhere that we can be loved and supported. And it sounds like you didn't have that from such an early age and that you were reaching for it and you were looking for it in any place that you could. Yeah, I think one of his main tactics, too. I think that's why it was so easy for him, because he knew all of my vulnerabilities. He knew about my parents, and he knew that there was that early childhood sexual abuse. And, you know, it was like right off the bat, basically, my family wasn't safe, and he kind of just preyed off of that. I know for me, my mom was my first trafficker. And just like you're saying, she used whatever vulnerability she could find to make sure that I would comply with her. Sometimes it's hard for other people to imagine if they haven't been through this situation. So I just commend you for your bravery in sharing this. I know that it's not easy because even as I look at my own story, it's never easy. But I'm so proud of you for surviving. Let's start with that. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So when it was a typical day and you were around your trafficker, because I don't even want to call him your grandfather because I think that just puts the wrong spin on it because what he truly did, to me, that doesn't make him a family member anymore. As you were in your trafficking situation, was there anything he particularly did to keep you under control? My grandpa used torture to keep me under control. So, you know, if I wasn't making his quota for the day, he would stick me in a cage and um, starve me. And I mean, there were other forms of torture that he would use. But that was a lot of what his tactics were to get me to do what he wanted. And I was told 
from my grandpa that he owned my body. So that's what I thought my entire life. And the more research that I do for people who've experienced trauma of a really deep level, whatever you do to survive, thank goodness that your brain did it that way. Thank goodness that you're here. When you were trafficked, did he ever transport you anywhere? I bet a lot of people are listening right now and they're thinking, did it happen in her own home? And who were your buyers? How did this happen? Right. Yeah. I mean, the main area I was trafficked to, it was a brothel and he would transport me there. I guess we would call it a house, right? And it was out in the country. And the only reason I know that is because there were a couple of times where he had taken me outside. That was the main place that I was trafficked. But he did also transport me along the highways to different locations. And he would take me to this warehouse. It was by the water. My buyers were a lot of high-end people. So it was a lot of businessmen, politicians, attorneys, judges, um, law enforcement even. There were doctors, fishermen, and I mean, honestly, anyone can be a buyer. It's ordinary men, it's ordinary people, and that's why I think it's so hard for people to understand. I think a lot of people think that buyers are people from different countries and everything. No, no, they're There are people from Canada, they're Canadians. It could be your husband, it could be your local doctor, it could be your local judge, you know, highly respected people, and they do come in, and they are regulars. And I did also see people who were traveling as well, and that was a lot of the businessmen. So this is all happening in the, the Halifax area, so within Nova Scotia, correct? Correct, yes. Okay. So much of my job, I am hearing stories from survivors and telling stories of survivors and how much it is someone that they knew, right? And how many times are we, oh, it couldn't be that person. It's doctors, it's lawyers, like stereotypically. Maybe we wouldn't think of someone like that immediately saying, oh, you're a buyer. Oh, you're a trafficker, Right. And we can't classify everyone in that way. But what I want to point out is just to say that it doesn't rule someone out. So it doesn't stop you from recognizing a potential trafficking situation in the future. Everyone can be impacted by the way society talks about sex, the way society talks about women, and that impacts this story. Here is someone who is already in that role, who is already, oh, I am the grandfather. Like I am already in a role where I am expected to be loving and caring and I'm expected to be with this child. And I already know all of these things about your family. I don't need to spend time pouring into you and asking questions and playing this role of this romance because I'm already entrenched in this. How many people saw you with your grandfather? How many people at school saw you? And the way that you maybe interacted with your mother and father or getting picked up or school activities, like there are other areas where people are witnessing these things and where we can be paying attention and simply asking questions. What were some of those behaviors that those adults in your life could have seen as indicators, could have 
noticed as something that wasn't right and and could have said something. I mean, <laughs> I was thinking about this and this seems like silly, but it's really not. Even in preschool, I remember I made up this like kissing game going around like kissing boys on the lips in preschool. And I was getting like shamed for it from my teachers and getting in trouble. But like, it's like, hello, that's a red flag. That's not something to like shame a child for. But no one did anything because children at three years old, because I was three in preschool, shouldn't know what that is. Yeah, I think I was definitely over-sexualized as a child, and that did continue. What were some of those behaviors as you got older to help, like, kind of help other people identify that? What did that look like in middle school or high school? Right. Even, like, weird behaviors. Like, I had, like, all my girlfriends go in a circle, and then... I would make all of them make out with the boys one by one to be a part of my group. The teachers would see it and like I would get in trouble, obviously. The teachers wouldn't call CPS or like, you know what I mean? They wouldn't look at that as alarming behaviors. I would just get punished for it. It sounds, Brittany, like they really missed opportunities to look at your behavior and ask the deeper questions of why does she know how to do this at this age? Why is this activity what seems fun to her? Who displayed this behavior and made it normal? So first, I just want to say so many survivors of abuse can identify with that because what we went through made it normal for us. I know my early sexual abuse made acting out in a sexual manner towards others super normal, and I didn't realize it was inappropriate. Adults missed the opportunity to correctly display and model what's appropriate and what's inappropriate. Right. Yeah, absolutely. We're just starting this conversation in Canada on a wide scale. We're starting to realize that pornography, think about Pornhub and MindGeek all over the news right now. People are waking up to the reality that trafficking is happening. People are waking up to the reality that they thought it was normal and no big deal. And then you have survivors like Brittany who are brave enough to share their story. And now the hard part is being able to identify who's being trafficked. That's why it's so amazing when survivors speak up. What a fantastic note to say to all of our drivers, right? I mean, we are reaching out to this amazing group of men and women who are covering the highways of North America. Brittany, would you say there are other factors that make this case specific to Canada or other stories you know of trafficking in Canada that can kind of help better inform our listeners? I think it's really difficult to just say that trafficking is really specific to just Canada or just the United States or just this country. But I think, honestly, my story is one that everyone can relate to. It's a trafficking story. And I think familial trafficking is very prevalent. And a trusted adult abused me and took advantage that happens all too far often. I think that 
trafficking is trafficking is trafficking, no matter where it happens. On that note, is there anything that you would like to say to our listeners in particular, our listeners in Canada in particular? Yeah, I do have something. Um, I just, I really want you to think of a child right now, any child that you know, your daughter, your son, your sister, your neighbor, your student, your niece. Think of them right now. Close your eyes. Those people can be child trafficking victims. So please educate yourselves about human trafficking so that you can know the signs and you can save a victim of trafficking. If just one person noticed the signs in my case, I would have been rescued. You could save a life or many lives. Victims who are still stuck in trafficking need you to see them and hear them. They need you to be brave and do something to help them. Yeah. That is so true and so powerful to hear you saying that. And Liz, what is something that you would like to say to our Canadian listeners? So I would love for the Canadian audience to know that recently we launched TAT Canada. And if you're a Canadian company listening to this or you happen to know a Canadian company that wants to get involved, please feel free to reach out to Truckers Against Trafficking's website and send us an email to get involved with TAT Canada. Thank you so much, Brittany and Liz, for your time and your energy today. I know walking through these memories can be difficult, and so thank you for taking the time to do that with us. And one of the things I think is so critical for us to talk about, especially as we're talking about this episode, our first episode talking about trafficking in Canada, is that, well, one, I never want someone to feel like they're looking for trafficking around every corner. That isn't the case. But I do want everyone to know exactly what to look for and to be aware that it could be something that happens around you. Then when we see some of those behaviors, see some of those red flags, we're asking those questions and calling the Canadian hotline number at 1-833-900-1010. So you can call that number anytime, anywhere in Canada. Again, it's 1-833-900-1010 to report a potential trafficking case. So then those right steps can be taken so someone can intervene and that they have a chance for recovery. So when you see a young adult or a teen acting out sexually or notice that they're acting strange around family members or maybe they're acting strange at the playground or in their schoolwork, just start looking at those things. Start asking some of those questions. And that's why we created this podcast for you, our listeners, to be equipped and empowered in this work against human trafficking. So please make sure to subscribe to this podcast rate and review it so we know how we're doing and so others can find this content. And of course, share this with your colleagues and friends and family members. You are the everyday heroes whose choices to have compassion, to be observant, and to make the call really is driving freedom. 